Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. Thank you, Samara Hernandez, for introducing me to today's guest, Beatriz Acevedo, CEO and co-founder of Suma Wealth. Suma is a revolutionary financial wellness company with a mission to engage, educate, and empower the Latinx community by a holistic approach of digital media, experiences, and fintech. Previously, Beatriz founded MeToo, a digital media company that elevates and celebrates the voices of our multidimensional Latinx community. We discuss her approach to founding a fintech company, examples of creative ways she uses content in order to build community, and why she wanted to focus on personal finance. Without further ado, here's Beatrice. Beatrice, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I'd love to start at the beginning. In the early days, what was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship and media? You know what? I started my career really uh, early on when I was about eight years old. I was a kid DJ radio announcer. And so that started my attraction to, to media. I, I had a, a specific goal. There was a very popular a boy band at the moment in Mexico called Menudo from where Ricky Martin came from. And so I thought if I land a job in radio, when Menudo comes into town, I can meet them. And then Ricky and I will fall in love. We'll get married eventually. And my life is set at eight. I was planning my, my future. So that was media. Entrepreneurship came around the same time. My parents hosted these very big Sunday carne asadas, which is really a cookout, a barbecue. And people didn't need an invitation. They would just sort of like show up every Sunday. So I thought this is perfect for me. Every time after the meals, I had a good solid audience there. And I would perform anything that I could think of from gymnastics. I was a very, I did gymnastics when I was a kid to, you know, puppet shows, 
to anything that I could. And then after that, I would run to the kitchen and get this like tortilla holder that my mom had that looked very fancy. It looked like it was like a silver little basket. And I would then pass it around so people could sort of like chip in for the performance. So I think at a very early age, I was already doing my friends and family round, or at least I was training for it. My mother made me give back the money, but it still trained me at not being embarrassed to ask for money, you know, ask start early on in my funding. So yeah, I think I had it in me all of my life. My parents were pretty mortified to see me do that with their friends and, and our family. But uh, I was shameless back then and still I am now. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's really great that you kind of started so young, putting yourself out there um, in all these shows. And that's super awesome, as well as being a DJ when you're eight. That's super cool. I guess skipping ahead a bit further, I love to learn about the early foundings of Me Too and some of the insight or the opportunity that you saw. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, I think every every company or every entrepreneur is trying to solve for something. For me, I was incredibly privileged to be able to start my career in media at a very early age and then my career in television. But I was very frustrated after college when I started my own production company here in, in Los Angeles that I could never break anybody into my own shows, anybody from my community. And when you spoke to the heads of these networks and studios, same as today, and this is 25 years ago, they would still say the same thing. We can't find the talent. You know, we can't find the Latinos. We can't. And I'm like, well, it, that's odd because I go back to my office and there's so many people saying you guys don't take their phone calls, right? So uh, there was always this broken bridge and there continues to be not just in entertainment. We know that happens in, in venture capital as well. So I really wanted to solve for this disconnect uh, at some point. So with Me Too, I thought, wow, digital is here and this is how we get a voice. This is how we have a real opportunity. I would tell kids all the time, if you have a phone, you have an opportunity. You no longer need to wait to be validated by a network or a studio. You can start putting out your content, build massive audiences, a franchise, and then potentially if you are interested in going the traditional route, at least you have something to show that you've incubated. So the idea for Me Too was that to really build a company that had that scale to super serve two pain points of mine. One, the next generation of storytellers that were not getting an opportunity to tell their stories and to really diversify media and entertainment. So by building Me Too, I could give them that scale and that platform to incubate their stories or ideas, their characters, etc. And to build those franchises to later be taken into TV or film. And at the same time, really to super serve a need of a demographic that is massive and that continues to grow that very few people even Latinos sometimes forget that it exists 50 years ago the growth of our Hispanic community came from immigration today the growth comes from nativity from U.S. born Latinos so there are companies that only focus because I think that's just sort of like the mindset of oh Latino perfect. You speak Spanish, you watch soap operas, you watch TV, you watch Univision. And yes, that is a reality. And that's only 19% of the population that is Hispanic prefers to consume their content in, in Spanish. But I really wanted to super serve the other 81%, the really young Latinos that were US born, and that really felt like they didn't belong much in, in this country because media never represented them. They're either put in one bucket that says, you're Latino and speak Spanish and watch soaps, or you are already general market. So I don't need to do anything differently to target you or to connect with you emotionally. And that is absolutely a massive mistake. So with Me Too, that was the path to really super serve, build a community that felt I absolutely belong here. Somebody sees me, somebody gets me. And on the other hand, really be able to help accelerate the path and the career and the incubation of storytelling for kids in my community. So that was the impetus. And it was 
amazing. You know, it was, there was nothing extraordinary that I did, um, but it was really just that massive need in our community to have that place where they felt they belonged, which is something so powerful, right? Belonging right there next to um, food and shelter is one of humans' basic needs. So definitely very, very important that we were able to do that with Me Too. Absolutely. I mean, I think you touched on a good point where you have a lot of folks saying, hey, we need to appeal. We need to get more, you know, in this case, a Latin audience or more folks that are Latin, but in terms of the outreach or firms of, you know, even just checking their messages, there's so much opportunity, but when it comes to actually walking the walk, it actually is not quite there, which is a really, really, really good point that you've touched on. And I, I just, I really love that founding story of Me Too. During Me Too, how did you think about, you know, what made and on the storytelling side, of course, you've worked in media for a long time, but what kind of makes a really compelling story? An authentic story, right? For anybody. And a good story. We always said not because it's, Latin, Latinx, Latino, Latina means it's going to be successful. It still has to be good, right? Like you can't forget. It's like when you launch anything, it's like, it's great that you're a woman and a woman of color and you, you have all these things that you've accomplished and that you bring as far as like those skill sets into the table. But if your product's still not good, it's still not going to be successful. So, so same with storytelling. It still needs to be good. Obviously for our community, that the majority of the content that we see is very much a stereotype of who others think we are. Clearly, the, the, the winning ingredient, among many others, is that it is true and that it's authentic and that it comes from one of our voices. So we have none of that in media and in Hollywood. Only 1% of showrunners, which means people who run the show and write these, these shows or these movies, are Latinx. Only 1%. Yet this demo, when you also include video games, consumes 50% of the entertainment. 5-0. So 5-0 consumption versus 1% of being the makers. So clearly, you know, there is such an opportunity to tell incredible, authentic stories. Now, the problem is that when you show up in such big numbers, right, when you're 30% of the box office or 50% of the uh, consumers of entertainment, when, when you add video games, like I was saying, then that message to Hollywood, to media, to the video game companies is, well, if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? Latinos are still showing up, are still consuming more than anybody. Do they really want their stories? Do they? But I always say, listen, imagine if this is without us being represented, what this could mean when we are. Just last week, there was a new Selena series on Netflix and immediately the day it launched, it was number one around the world. So there are, there is data that shows and proves that when there's something authentic, when there's something culturally relevant, we show up even more, even more than that 50%. So there's so much opportunity. And like I said, not just in media, but in, in consumer products and anything that just says, we see you right? And this brand is for you and you belong here. That is a message that I can't convey enough to any other company thinking about the future of their brand. If you really want to future-proof your brand, you cannot afford to not be in business with this demographic. Look at the numbers and that's where the market is going. No, I, absolutely. This is a conversation I also spoke with uh, Steven Pereira, if you know him. At uh, I love it, him. Yes. Yeah. I'm on his advisory board for Encantos. He's oh. an incredible human and I 
absolutely adore his brand and his company. Yeah, he's fantastic. We spoke last week and super stoked to have him on the podcast. So he's great. Um, also, Samara introduced us. So she's introduced me to some of my, one of, I think, are some of my most compelling guests. So super excited to have him on. And of course, you. And so I completely agree with that. In Stephen's case, he was talking about how, you know, since it's storytelling for children, you know, having characters that actually can relate to the Latinx community or to other communities that maybe have been overlooked when it comes to children's stories as well. So I totally can understand that as well with Me Too. And I really appreciate you just kind of explaining how you think about storytelling just overall. And I remember watching Selena when I was growing up, the original movie. So I'm, I'm really stoked on the Netflix one. I haven't caught an episode yet, but that'd be fun to watch. So what led you to founding Sumo Wealth? The pandemic and the economic downturn. Absolutely. I, I really didn't think I had another startup in me. You know, we sold Me Too a year ago and I have teenage twins who are in high school now. Um, I'm very involved in philanthropy. I'm, I'm now in charge of running my family's foundation as well. And I just thought, okay, this is going to be a, a bit more of a easygoing life for, for a few years while I send my kids off to college and I devote myself into my philanthropy. But looking at everything that was happening in our country, in the world, and how Latinos continue to be the demo that spends the most but saves the least in a pandemic and in an economic crisis, that is not going to go well, right? Knowing that our communities her family, if they have $1,000 in savings, that's a lot. And that's the average is mortifying. So I wanted to, well, my co-founder, Javier Gutierrez, who is in, fi into, in finance and he has been all his life. I had pitched him the idea of a fund. I wanted to raise a fund after me too, where I could invest in female Latina female founders. And he kept sending, selling me this idea of like, no, no, let's do a financial wellness company. You'd be great for this. I'm like, well, listen, I'm not a financier. So I don't know why I would be great for a financial wellness company. And he would always say to me, now I understand, but back then I didn't. And this is probably over a year, a year and a half ago. You're perfect because you're not a financier because you know exactly how to build brands, how to build scale, how to build community. That's exactly what we need. We need a marketer. We don't need a, a financier. And I just thought, no, right? Like, I don't think so. I think you need to finance it. Like, no, because that's why it's not working. There's great products in fintech and they know how to target a lot of these demos. But if you look at the data, Latinos are just not there. And that mentality of if you build it, they will come does not has not applied to our to our community. So that was really the impetus thinking okay, people don't even know how to apply for a PPP loan. They don't know what furlough is. They don't know. There's so much information that people couldn't understand. There was information out there, but it was hard to understand. It was daunting. It wasn't in culture. It was in language. You could find it in English or you could find it in Spanish, but you couldn't find it in a way that was easy to understand. And I think that goes for every nationality. And, you know, I think once you're a founder, you always have sort of like that itch of like, oh, I could build this, right? Like, this is what I could do. And Samara, out of all people, Samara Mejia, who leads Chingona Ventures, I was introduced by my co-founder to her, uh, by Javier. And she and I had been speaking um, after the Upfront Summit um, that I was speaking at there with um, Zoe Saldana and Eva Longoria on the power of Latinos. And she said, listen, whatever you're going to do next, Javier has been telling me about this company that you're thinking about all, all I want to fund and I want to lead. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I don't even have a name for the company. So she was literally one of those like 
first investors, like I believe so much in the, in the space, in you, in the community and where the growth is going. So she, that's how it all started literally by her saying, I have a term sheet with no name of a company, but ready for you to launch this in the middle of this pandemic and all via zoom. So it was definitely a very different type of startup, but I'm incredibly excited. That's fascinating. That's a really terrific story. And that's, that's just so cool that Samara kind of made you that offer right, right then and there. That's super cool. I know what it felt to be like in the boys club when people tell these stories of, you know what, I just got together with my, my friend and we were at a bar and yeah, I pitched him the idea and he gave me the funding. I was like, oh my God, am I in that club now with this like crazy privilege <laughs> that, you know, over a drink after the upfront summit, it's like, I'll make you a deal now. I was like, well, what? <laughs> but now obviously a lot of responsibility to, to deliver for her and for everyone else in my cap table. I'm so proud of the fact, Mike, that everyone in our cap table is a woman. We're making room from, for one celebrity that we haven't announced who is a guy, but he, he's amazing. So he'll be our, our token uh, male, some, some testosterone in our group. But every single investor is, is a female. 90 plus percent are Latinas. There's so many few Latinas in venture. And I'm just so excited because when we say that our slogan is building wealth juntos, building wealth for our community, that includes people who are in my, in my cap table. So I'm honored, but I'm also sometimes getting my panic attacks of like, there is no way I am not going to deliver for them. <laughs> oh no, you absolutely will deliver. And that is, that's amazing. I love also your approach to your cap table and just, uh, yeah, I mean, that's amazing that you have right at the moment all-female investors and really excited as well for that celebrity announcement. That'll be really, really cool. You know, what I find really interesting about Suma is it seemed like you took a little bit of a different approach where typically, and I feel like in, in fintech or wealth management products, it's the product first, content later, where it seems like, if this is fair to say with Suma, it's content first and then the product later. Is that kind of right? Or what was, I guess, like the initial approach to actually building Suma? It's very close. I wouldn't say we were not obsessed about the product already, but we did not wait to launch until we have the perfect product. So I would say more than it's content first, it's community first. It's really building the community, building the trust and building the brand. The way we do that obviously is through content. So yes, you are absolutely right in saying that that has been our, our initial focus because you have to understand that our community particularly, I mean, there's so much data about needing to build trust with women or communities of color or people from underrepresented backgrounds. There, there's so much of that. Yet there there's an extra layer when you talk to our community of Latinos because our parents, our grandparents come from countries that had a lot of economic trauma and that we still remember. At least I still remember. I, I, I don't know if we spoke about this at some other point, but I clearly and vividly remember as a child when the Mexican president come, came on TV to tell the country that there was a massive devaluation. You know, we didn't, we didn't have Twitter at the time, so we had to wait for the announcement for the president. And I don't know. I think the peso to the dollar was six to one. And that day was 6,000 to one. It was massively devaluated. I remember also my mom looking to my dad and saying, thank God our bank accounts are in US dollars. Because at that time, and my parents lived in the border, you were able to open bank accounts in American dollars because you would pay for everything in dollars if you lived in a border city, your rent, your food, everything. And one second later, the president, almost like, like, like the president heard my mom 
saying this, it was like, oh, and by the way, for all of you that had American bank accounts, there's no American, there's no dollars in this country anymore. So pretty much they just stole all of their money, like in one quick 30 second announcement. So the trauma that you have as far as, and there's so many stories. You talk to so many other people were like, you know, I lived in Venezuela. I lived in Chile. I lived in Argentina. And one day I could never pull out my money out of my bank account or out of my bank or so. And then you come to this country, whether it's you, your parents, your grandparents, you continue to hear these stories. And they're passed down on generations on how this distrust in the financial institutions. So we have that added layer of distrust. So you have to be, before you start pushing any products and services into our community, you need to make sure that they feel comfortable trusting what you are recommending and who you are. So that is why we wanted to first launch as we want to be and position ourselves very, very quickly as the trusted source of anything in finance for our community right? That was our biggest goal. At the same time, we have some simple tools that they can start using in our website. We are looking into having an MVP ready by the end of Q1. We are starting to test some subscription models starting in January. So it's not like we're, we wanted to be a content company by any means that talked about finance. We actually want to be that hybrid between what a nerd wallet and a credit karma is and a betterment, right? We, 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 because as we become, as we gain our scale and as we become that trusted source, immediately our community quickly asks after they learn what a fractional share is, well, how do I do it? Who can I trust? Who do you trust? What app? do I download? So we will be doing a lot of this same sort of referral model that many other companies do. But at the same time, we are working on our own products. We tend to team up with fintech companies that have incredible products and we hope to validate them with our community. And at the same time, build things that haven't been done before that we know would be very transformational when it comes to building wealth for our families and for our communities that are much more in the communal space. You know, our, our, our communities and just the way we are is others before self. So even when you're developing a product, you have to have that, that in mind. So yes, a lot of content for now and a lot of brand and community building, but make no mistake, we are building our own products as well. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I mean, thank you so much for sharing the very powerful story. Even though I know you don't come from a like a finance background, it makes sense how passionate you are about this issue in terms of education and, and teaching people about personal finance because it's oh so, so important to everybody. And I uh, just really want to thank you for that. Community, it seems like, at least on Twitter, like kind of like a buzzword now because everybody wants to have a community or grow a community. And I would just love to think about, you know, because you've done this before, probably several times over in your career when it comes to building communities. But I would say for Suma, in the initial stages, just, just take me to those back to, you know, when you first started a few months ago, when you were thinking about your approach to actually building community. We're very intentional in every single thing that we do. And I talk about this with my, my team of interns. <laughs> We say, listen, if, if this would fit comfortably anywhere else, if this post could go on Robin Hood, Acorns, Credit Card, it's not for us, right? We, we were very, very, not that it wouldn't be good, that's, that's great, but we wanted to be very intentional in everything that we do, that we are very unapologetically Latinx. Like we apps, and if you look at our feed, if you look at our blog, if you look at our website, everything about it says, you belong here. Like this is made for you. Money is, you belong in this money conversation. We get you because we are like you. And that is the approach that I've taken before at building other communities. It's 
as a marketer, you know, there's, and especially in the US, there's very few things that you could still say, wow, there's such a massive void that I'm going to come and fill it. Pretty much everything's been filled. Except when it comes to this demographic, it's really baffling to me how it's just so separated into the bucket of the Spanish speakers and the English speakers. And what we do is very much build a community that is in culture and not in language. And it seems like it's easy to do, but it definitely needs um, its skills, right? Sometimes when, when I talk to other brands, they're like, okay, I get it. Maybe I throw a couple of Spanish words here or there. And then I put, you know, I'm like, no, it's not about putting like some tacos and dancing chiles and throwing like the word mija somewhere in the mix. Um, it really needs to be rooted in some Something that either is very nostalgic to you on the way you sort of grew up or is something that is very pop culture, but how would our families do it? Um, so that's how I've been able to build community before. I'm hoping to build it by that, by that strong sense of belonging and also by building a community where everybody feels that it's safe to not be an expert, to not know. We have a very funny series that's called 401K, like 401 what? And you have no idea how successful that has been because so many people, thousands of people say, oh my gosh, this is exactly how I feel. I would never say at work that I don't know or I don't understand what my... But by building that place where you're safe to not know, to ask, to learn, and on top of that, that we make you feel absolutely that it's not for anyone else, but for you and we get you and we are like you, I think that is just the start of an incredibly strong community. And especially with a group that feels like as Americans, imagine you're an American born in this country, yet nobody sees you, right? You're a majority and you spend so much money and you're entering the workforce at a faster rate than anybody. And your contributions are massive. And yet you're so misunderstood. You're so um, underrepresented in anything that you do that when you find that one brand, that one place that makes you feel, hey, you're welcome here. You belong here. It's incredibly powerful. Absolutely. And I appreciate that example as well with 401k. What are maybe some other examples? Because I guess when you're thinking about what content to produce, I love that you said it has to be different to Wealthfront or Betterment. And it has to be different to these other financial products that are currently out there. But I'd love just to hear what are some other examples that I guess bring in the Latinx community and really like identifies with them, if that makes sense. Well, something that we've been doing a lot is, I mean, we're still experimenting because we want to learn from every single post. I, I just had my first board meeting of three, two days ago, and we were showing them how much testing and how much data there is behind a funny meme, right? Because the investors say, oh my God, who came up with this idea? It's so funny. And it is funny, but there's a lot of insights behind it. And there's a lot of tests. We test headlines, colors, everything, messaging. One thing that we've discovered that resonates incredibly well with our audience is credit building. And I'm sure it will resonate with other communities as well. But how do we do it that's different? I'll give you an example of something that we posted that has been very successful and it was last Tuesday. So we thought, perfect. We want to explain hard concepts with things that are very easy to understand for our community. And as you know, food, we are big foodies. That is not a stereotype. That is a reality. So for example, we wanted to explain what a hard 
hard inquiry was versus a soft inquiry on your credit rating. And if we would just have posted that, we would have lost every single person on our feed. They would have just been like, this is not for me. So we decided to illustrate what a soft and a hard inquiry were posting on a Taco Tuesday and showing the hard inquiry with a hard taco shell and then explaining every single ingredient and thing that went into a hard inquiry versus a soft tortilla on a soft taco, right? Um, and it's just done in a very fun, relatable, easy to understand way. And you are so surprised with people even been saying like I, I couldn't even understand this in my finance class or like I'm studying economics and like I learn more here and those are the things that we want we want to empower our community and everybody we have a lot of people who are not Latinx as we had in Me Too even now that we're doing this giveaway as we explain fractional shares and we're encouraging our community to not spend their money this holiday season but grow their money hopefully and if they're going to spend it to spend it obviously locally but there's a lot of non, non Latinos who are like wow this is incredible can I participate I'm not Latin, but they relate. They want to learn. They want to grow their wealth, of course. And, you know, we're lucky to have a proposition that if you ask anybody, hey, do you want to grow your wealth? It would be rare for somebody to say, no, no, thank you. I'm good. Right. So we're excited that we are seeing so much crossover. We are certainly very, like I was saying, very unapologetically Latinx, but we are still part of pop culture. Um, so there's other demos that are interested, um, whether they're white, black, Asian American, women, that we're excited that gravity towards very easy pop culture way to understand finance. I call it like the intersection of entertainment and finance. So as much as we can gamify the process and start building wealth in groups that haven't had access to that, I feel so blessed and so lucky to be able to be that CEO building this company. I love that. I mean, and I absolutely agree. Making finance a lot more fun, which makes it, I think, more accessible and the actual gamification about it, then folks can learn a lot more because they're not, you know, trying to look up terms or kind of all these things, but actually want to learn because it actually is a lot more fun. I'd love to have you walk us through a little bit of your business model. I know you're still working on the actual financial product, but is it right now affiliates, for example, about recommendations for specific products that folks can use? I'm just kind of curious in terms of how you're thinking about the business model at this point. I have... De definitely many legs to my stool of monetization, especially now. And yes, referral is one of them. You know, it, it's easy. It works. Um, you need scale to be able to really make it make an impact in your business. And we are just getting started. But because our community already is asking us, who can I trust? Who do you trust? Where should I go? What app do I download? We are starting to make these deals with companies that we... And also we feel a very big responsibility, right? When, when people ask you, who do you trust so I can trust them. That's a lot of power very quickly, but also, like I say, a lot of responsibility. So we're definitely curating partners that align with the mission of our company and, and with our values. Um, so we are making those deals now. We'll, we'll announce some at, at the beginning of the year, but great products, great brands that haven't had the insights into how to connect to our community. You know, definitely this disclosed by their own CEOs. So they are also excited that we can make them that trusted source for whatever product they have, that it's excellent, but somehow they haven't been able to connect to our to our community. So that's, that's one. The other one is we're going to test a subscription model starting in January. We're, we're launching a very fun campaign that's called New Year 
wealthier me instead of healthier me, but we're playing on the words of, you know, build more of your financial muscle, lose the debt, almost like, like very sort of like play on what everybody's on their mind of, of, of losing, losing the weight here. You can lose the debt. And with that, we're going to be offering a financial checkup, for example. So think about that when you go to the doctor and you get your labs back and you have some stuff out of range at times, sometimes not. And then once you look at that, then we can say we can help you put that in range. And not only that, but get to get to your goal, longer term goals. So that will be a mix of robo advising with humans as far as like walking you through the steps to get to your goal. So that's how we're going to start testing subscription within our community. And that has another revenue model attached. The other one is we are already starting to cut deals with different financial institutions and some fintechs for branded content. That's very low hanging fruit for me as that is my background. We did a lot of that at Me Too. And again, the campaigns that they are doing, they're well-intentioned, I think, um, but don't fully connect with this demo. And when they see that we are at a 40X in engagement of anything that they're putting out for, for a community or just for just general youth, it is attractive to them to build their marketing campaigns with us and co-brand them. So, And that is really still the same content that we are doing but obviously in a branded way where they can align their their own brands um, to, to what we are doing and sort of start getting that trust from our community. So that's another one. And then eventually, obviously, from our own products and services that we, that we develop. But we have other fun things we're hoping to launch by October, by Q4, our own DineroCon. So think about Comic-Con or BeautyCon, but this will be a, a money con. We don't know if it'll be live or digital, but we have a lot of fun ideas ideas to, to get you into that fun money conversation. There's different, different things that we'll test, but certainly we're not being complacent in thinking this is the only avenue that we're going to stay on. We're very, very open to even team up and do banking as a service and white level things that are ready that we can launch quicker than what we would have thought we would by the next summer, et cetera. Hopefully that sort of answers your question. Oh, it absolutely does. It seems like there's so many different ways that you're thinking about in terms of monetization strategies. And um... Oh, and I forgot to mention one very important one. I'm sorry. Uh, we have our Suma Academy. So besides the Instagram or social media posts that we have or our blog that it's a bit more robust than what you could see on social, we also are launching our Suma Academy. And we're very excited about that because that lets you really dive deeper into personal finance and into mini certification programs. So whether you're and, and we want to be able to meet our community at whatever life journey they are of their finances. So for example, if you're a high school student, you're about to graduate from high school, you're going to now need to do your own budget. You might need a few side hustles. You, how are you going to pay for student debt if you're going to have it? So all those things that are going to be very important for our seniors in high school to learn will be right there to, to walk them through sort of like that path. A different one is when you already graduated and are looking for a job or want to be an entrepreneur or a solopreneur sources of capital, a business plan, or how do you negotiate a package, et cetera, when you're getting married and buying a home and saving for now your kid's college to eventually how you're going to become an investor and a philanthropist, right? To bring it really full circle. So you're able to plug in whatever life journey you are and you feel comfortable and you can take all these different paths. And that we're doing through subscription as well. We're hoping to be able to raise some non-dilutive capital with some fantastic foundations that I'm already talking to so we can 
really do the basics for free and at scale. Um, and then the premium, that'll become more on that subscription model that people will be able to opt into. But if not, they'll at least get the basics on every single level, hopefully um, funded by these uh, foundations that already are doing financial education programs. But I don't think they're they're doing them the way that we're envisioning on doing them. I love that. I love that idea of the Sumo Academy and being able to actually connect with folks that are, you know, wanting to actually learn or develop that skill set. And yeah, I think that all these different scenarios of areas to monetize and just thinking about the business model, I think is really, really cool. And I think that it's only just great for folks, consumers of your content. This is just amazing. I'd love to know when you think about, you know, your target market. I know your your initial target market, I would say is the Latinx, but what are maybe some of the tactics that you've used in order just to find that audience and create like your brand presence? Well, I think it's all in the messaging, how you are speaking to them. Uh, when people say, I want to be a brand that's for all Latinos, you're like, well, how are you going to do that? It's very, very different the way you're going to speak to a recent immigrant, a second generation, a third, a boomer who is US born versus a boomer who is an immigrant. So we decided to just be very specific because you cannot be everything to, to all people. We also have that added, added layer, uh, as, as, as you know from the election, that we're not just one group of people. There's so much intersectionality within our community, not only from countries of origin, but you have Afro-Latinos, you have queer Latinos, you have Jutinos. There's so, there's so much intersectionality. So for us, we wanted to really focus on youth for two reasons. Well, and the way we do it is just how, how, how would you target them like any other brand? What are they interested in? What's their life journey at? And that's that's how we do it. But why we picked that demo is, is very important to, um, to talk about as hopefully learning for anybody um, listening or watching because this demo, and there's definitely everything I say is, is, is data-based and data-driven, happy to share with anybody, but this demo is the one that has been charged for their entire lives by being the Sherpas of their families. They have literally had to translate not just the language, but, but the American ethos for their families, for their parents, for their grandparents. So this, this group is incredibly influential with their family and with their community. So why we picked them was exactly because of that. They are going to be our ambassadors. Anything that they like, they'll share eight times more than any other community. So when you think about ROI, when you think about audience acquisition, this is an incredible target because they also happen to have the most diverse group of friends. Few people know this, and we did this study while I was at Me Too with PWC. So uh, black kid, Asian kid, white kid, for the most part, it's about 70-30 on how their, their friends are versus their community. So most of them have the majority of friends that are like they are. And then obviously around 30%, um, 35, 38, depending on the demo, but it's around there that are diverse. Latinos are the only cohort, super interesting, that it's the reverse. The majority of their friends are non-Latinos. So we always used to say to, to brands, when you invest a dollar into a Latin, if you only have $1 to invest, invest it in a Latino kid because it's going to go to, if you want to reach youth, 
that's your gateway to, to youth. And also it has an added layer that if they like your product, if they identify, if they're highly engaged, that's why I'm so proud of our engagement uh, numbers, they will share it eight times more out. Um, so that's why we're being very intentional that we are picking them because they're highly influential with their families and they demystify products and services that people buy in, in their households, but they're highly influential with their group of friends and their group of friends is incredibly diverse. So it's very, very intentional of why we are picking millennials. And then now the older Gen Z's as men, millennials start to age up a bit. That's a really interesting statistic about the younger Latinx communities, how diverse their friend groups are. I haven't heard that before. That, that's really cool as well. And that's why I think like English language content that still is in culture is very critical because before, even if they wanted to, they love to share. But if in, on social, you only have the content in, in Spanish and you'll hear this from, you know, legacy brands that are like, no, 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 but they speak Spanish. Like, yeah, but ask them the question of in what language do they prefer to consume the cut? Then the answer is 80% of them prefer English, but it's also opportunistic. If you think about it as a brand, if you do it in Spanish, them sharing with their non-Latinx friends is impossible because they don't speak Spanish. But if you do it in culture and they want to say, hey, remember when you came to my house and my abuela overfed you and this was the joke, like this is the video, right? That, that you'll get a kick out of even though you're not Latinx, but you're my friend and you get my pain when you come to my house or like it smells like Vicks vapor rube all over because we feel that that's the cure for everything, even coronavirus. I'm just kidding. But you know, there's something of pride to say, look, this is me to be shared. Whereas before, if you, if you do it in language, there's no opportunity for them to do that. There's no opportunity for them to be those big ambassadors of your brand. So you need to have those insights very front and center because particularly with startups that you're thinking, what's your go-to-market strategy? How are you going to engage youth? There's no way to engage youth if you're not in business with multicultural audiences, as we know, right? And so it's very, very important for anybody, not if you are particularly focusing on this demographic, but you need this demographic for growth and to future-proof your brand into the future, as we said before. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that those are really, really great points. Um, what's what's one thing you would change about the fundraising process? <laughs> the amount of, two things, the dilution <laughs> for every founder, right? I'm just like, it's exciting to raise a lot of money. Trust me. I think I'm a professional fundraiser, but then you start to look at the dilution. You're like, I have to stop. I have to stop. This is why I was like tomorrow deadline, even though I had reopened it. And then I think the amount of time that it takes as a, you know, as a, as a founder of an early stage company, as much as you don't want to be consumed with, with a process, it really takes over your life for a few months. So maybe there could be a way, and now that you know everything's been done through Zoom, uh, maybe there's a way to do more, you know, pitching to more people than, than one. So you don't have to repeat the exact same thing over. And then maybe you give each person like their own questions in a separate room or something a little bit more efficient um, with a time of, I think, uh, an early stage CEO where it's, you're so, it's so critical for you to also be doing so many other things at that time that you, I mean, I didn't put them on hold, but I was responding to emails and following up with people at midnight. So it, it becomes really, really difficult to keep up with. It's almost like you're already dreading the next series because you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to pause my life for th two, three months um, to do this? I was, I was lucky that I did it under a month, but it definitely took a toll on me. I was just, you know, sleeping four or five hours because 
I'm still looking at the content. I'm still looking at what's our next marketing play, what partnership as you are pitching and as you're doing, they're doing the due diligence and the second uh, round of questions and the third meeting. So it becomes just very time consuming. So I would say maybe a more efficient way to pitch at scale and I don't think we're going to be able to change the dilution. <laughs> no, absolutely. Speaking of that, first of all, congrats you're able to fundraise within a month. I mean, that's that's just amazing. What was your approach when it came to raising venture capital? Well, listen, I had done it before. I did my previous startup. And that was literally, I was Forrest Gump fundraising. I, I had no idea what I was doing. And I talk about this all the time. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to appear to be what I am. Not, I, I wasn't, you know, a successful producer. <laughs> that's, that's who I was. But I had, I didn't know what venture capital was. I didn't know what a series A was. I had no idea. And I was lucky that the first person that we pitched, my husband and I were co-founders at Me Too, it was to Peter Chernin. And Peter Chernin, as you know, he ran Fox for many, many years, but then eventually started his own fund and started investing heavily in digital media. So we were lucky that we knew Peter from our producing days, but we had no idea where, I mean, he asked us, are you raising a serious A? We're like, uh, sure. Like we, we should have said it was seed, but I didn't know the difference. I didn't know what it meant. So obviously I had a lot of learnings <laughs> from pitching to VCs, um, in my previous company from a series A to a series D. So this time around, I felt like, okay, I, I know what it is. I want to be very careful of, I learned that not all money is the same. Some investors were incredible. Some investors probably were not the right fit for us. And I was, this go around, I was very careful about that. Like I said, very intentional, who's on my cap table. I think why it came, why it was fast to close it was because I didn't have to over explain to the majority Latinas why this demo mattered, why this was important. They got it. You know, they were that market that I'm like, I get it. Like, I mean, it was, it was, so that, that part was incredibly lucky versus I had to pitch to people who are like, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know if this community is big in, you hear everything. So my approach this time was the opposite of my early time. I wanted to raise the least amount of capital possible and then try to match it with non-dilutive capital. So that was on the VC side. I still went beyond what I wanted a bit double than my initial goal, but it just felt like everybody was so strategic and I absolutely wanted them on my cap table. So, you know, trade-offs with uh, dilution and who's rooting in your corner for you to succeed. I think you raised a couple of good points. One, as you say, raising venture capital, it's kind of an odd thing. You're almost, you aren't really sleeping because you have to manage a business, but also pitch to investors one-on-one. -on -one. At the same time, you're trying to find the right strategic investors or the right folks that would be great for your cap table. But it's really hard to build a relationship within... You you know, a few months. What's great since you've raised money before is you already knew the folks that you wanted on your cap table, if that's fair to say, or you already had. No, actually. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, okay. Because I, well, I knew Samara for sure, but mm. I, I was very concerned because not because you've done it once, you could do it twice. This is like, this is in the middle of a pandemic. This is a few weeks before the presidential election where there's so much uncertainty. This is all pitching via Zoom. I, I pride myself that my energy can be contagious in a room, but I don't know via Zoom. I've never pitched via Zoom and I've never raised pre-seed capital, right? What's the difference? I was so mortified at the beginning because I worked so hard on my business plan and my financial model. And some investors were like, what? Like, you don't need this. We're just placing our bets on you. And that was like, oh my God, no, no, no. <laughs> don't place your bets only on me. Like, 
look at the market, look at my financial model. So there were so many learnings. It wasn't the same and it wasn't by any means the same investors. Cause as you know, investors who invest in pre-seed are not the investors and invest in A to, to, to D. And also this wasn't media. I wanted investors that were in the fintech space. Um, so there were not, um, I, I was lucky to know some of the people from boards, from, you know, my, my philanthropy. Um, but I, you know, none of them were, or previous investors of mine or that I could utilize that, but it, I was still incredibly lucky and, and privileged. So I, I'm definitely not, not complaining, but it wasn't sort of like, let me just call my old peeps that I think will be great. And they know me and we have sort of like that chemistry and rapport and it'll be super easy. No, I still had to introduce myself, you know, like, who are you? What have you done? Uh, so, yeah. So, no, no, it was, it was going back to the drawing board. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Then was it tough since you had to go back to the drawing board, almost, you know, vetting potential investors just because, you know, obviously I would say all the, all the time on the show, it's a long-term relationship. It's not just, it is obviously more than a check. These folks are going to be on your cap table for at least, you know, five, seven years. And just knowing that they are the right partner. I, that's what I always find is fascinating because you want to close so quickly, typically as a founder, but at the same time, picking a partner that, you know, will be there for, you know, the long-term and the right partner that also takes time as well. Did you ever fall into that? kind of thinking around it or or not so much yes no absolutely and i learned so much from my i didn't know you could do a due diligence on somebody giving you money i had no idea listen i was a tv producer right like i'm a i'm a girl from the border like i'm a girl from tijuana who studied marketing and here i am raising venture capital like so i had no idea until i would get calls after i had obviously taken the money from a lot of these investors in my previous venture saying, Hey, I'm doing due diligence. And I'm like, what? Like you're able to do it. I had no, idea. so all those learnings, I absolutely applied here, but you're also nervous to your point. You know, I think you are dead on. I, I tell people, listen, this is as important as a decision as who you're going to marry. It really, really is because hopefully who you marry, you're in love. And then the things that sort of annoy you as life goes on, they're, you know, hidden a bit by that love that you have for this. But here it's a very long time, especially with a co-founder or something like, it's a very long-term relationship with investors and a co-founder, particularly it's a long-term relationship. And if you're not really aligned, mission aligned, values aligned, not just that, Oh, I want to build a massive company that has a, a big exit, but everything about it of how the culture is going to set in your company, all the things that I never asked in my previous company and you pay a price for not doing that. Here, I was very careful. But on the flip side, I'm also I'm also now more knowledgeable to know that I am potentially the 0.2% that gets funded as a Latina, as an immigrant, as a woman. And who am I to say no to, to capital? And I have to say, although I had a stomachache at some points, I really honored my gut, which I didn't do the last go around, I really, really honored of where it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like it was a fit. And I was nervous and I was scared to say, what if nobody gives me the capital? What if, what if I'm saying no now and I don't have it later? It's a scary place to be. It's a very personal decision, right? If, or at least go in with your eyes wide open, right? And for me, I'm proud that I stuck to my gut 
I passed on a few offers and I said yes to the ones I feel incredibly excited about and grateful. And that's how my round came. But I also, again, I understand I'm in a place of privilege. Not everybody has an um, oversubscribed round. Not everybody's able to close in less than a month. Not every, I get that. And sometimes you have to make those tough choices. You know, is the, is the mission of this company and what I'm going to be doing in the world and who I'm going to be serving bigger than me potentially not loving one of my investors? Maybe, maybe not. But that is something that every founder should make that decision for themselves. But it is important that people go with their eyes very, very wide open into that decision. Thanks so much for sharing that and really getting vulnerable with us. I really, really appreciate it. I'd love to know what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Listen, my husband makes so much fun of me because I'm a total self-help girl. So I guess the, the books that inspire me personally inspire me professionally. I don't know. I mean, I guess this is a, such a simple one hour read, but I keep going back to it. And it really talks a lot about the character that you have in your personal life, but also your professional life. So I'm a very big fan of the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And it's just four simple things of how you are in life and what makes you be a good human and succeed personally and professionally. That's definitely one book that I keep going back to. Another book that I know it's controversial. So some people are like, what? I can't believe she said that book, but it really opened my eyes into just like probably female inequality was lean in. Like I just, I don't know. I hadn't noticed, you know, I was just very busy working and doing my own thing. Um, so that was the first time when I was like, huh, what? No, like, this is not fair. Like, this is not cool. And it definitely gave me a big sense of really taking as much space as you possibly can in every room that you're at, instead of being apologizing always for being loud or for being different or for having an accent that somebody might not understand a word that you're saying. I just thought that I was like, oh, this is very, I had never thought about it. So that, that, that was something that I really enjoyed. And then if it comes to fiction, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Latin American literature. So anything by Isabel Allende, anything with Garcia Marquez that just explores those very deep and complex family relationships, I can get lost in that as well. No, I love that. Thanks so much. And yeah, I mean, I appreciate it. I mean, you've, you've given some great nuggets in there too, in terms of, you know, on the lean inside, you know, really owning who you are and being very comfortable, almost coming back to being very comfortable with yourself and not worrying about other people in a funny way when you enter a room. If you're too loud, and that's that's you, you know, that's your personality. Not you, not you, not you. I'm, I'm definitely just saying, loud. I'm, I'm just definitely saying, like, loud. You know, oh, no, no, I'm definitely... But I do say, I do give that advice a lot, you know, and I think that's the best advice. Whatever makes you different, just really lean hard into it, right? Because I, I hear a lot of people from, from my community, from other communities saying, oh, because I'm the only woman in the room, because I'm the only immigrant, because I'm the only Latina, because I'm the only this. Because I'm like, awesome. For me, because I didn't know the stats and I, I don't know, I just arrived from Mexico. And when I pitched in these VCs in my, my previous startup, it's, a, it's really weird. I, I think it helped me to not know, oh, you're only like 0.2% of the stuff that maybe gets fun. I had no idea about these numbers, by the way. So when I would walk into these rooms and it was a sea of sameness, every single guy looked the same. For some funny reason, I felt so good. Like I was so empowered. I was like, yes, I've got this. Like nobody's like me. And I think you would really need that mentality of like, nobody there is like you. Instead of feeling little because you are different, 
you have to feel that that's your superpower. Those insights that you have, those learnings where you come from, what you're trying to solve because you felt that pain, all these things need to come out in that pitch instead of you being like, oh, no, 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 I'm the only one. I'm, I'm little, 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 little in this room. No, no, the opposite, right? Be so empowered. Being different is your superpower. That is the biggest advice I can give, not just founders, but just anybody. I love that. I absolutely love that that piece of advice. Really almost celebrate your differences. Your differences are your superpower. That's great. And also big fan of Garcia Marquez, huge fan of 100 Years of Solitude. That's one of my favorites. So that's great. I would say, I know we spoke about advice, but would love to just know what is the best piece of advice that you've received? Is it that your differences are your superpowers? If you happen to have another nugget in there as well. Uh, feel free to share. Yeah. You know, they say that you only need one person in life that fully believes in you to make it in general. And that I have to say was my dad. I was just a super fan of my dad. He believed that I could do anything in life that I would put my mind into, but he was always very concerned that I had that type A personality that I continue to have that I inherited from him of just like overworking myself to death. And he was always, I, and I remember this, and as I try to plan into 2021, um, on how I'm going to spend my time more, more wisely, he would always say, you cannot give what you don't have. Right. And I, I think that's really important, especially for, for founders. You feel very guilty to take time to meditate or you feel guilty to take time to take a walk and clear your head because you feel like you have so much to do, especially if you're a woman and you're a mom and you're a caregiver. I have my mom who lives with me. So I have all these responsibilities where you tend to put yourself at the very bottom of that list of self-care of you're like, no, I have no time for me. All the time is for everyone else and for a new company. So I would say um, to keep and check that, right? You're going to be able to give more. You're going to be able to do more. You know, that's why they say put your oxygen mask before you put your kids on, even on, on a plane. So to keep that in check, to always think that you cannot give what you don't have, it starts with you in being well uh, and being empowered and being well rested. So you can really be incredibly, that's how I hack my brain. I'm like, Oh, if I sleep more, I'm going to be more productive. <laughs> if I get on that Peloton bike early in the morning, I'm going to be more creative. So I think for founders that that have that personality and that they tend to overwork themselves. And again, particularly for women who happen to be moms, who happen to be caregivers, it's really crucial that we stop a little to think about ourselves as well. That's great piece of advice, especially during these times when, especially for mothers with young kids, it's especially difficult. So I think always being able to, even if it's just for a few minutes a day, being able to have a time just whether it's meditation or, you know, maybe going for a run or just doing something for yourself. I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can't say I'm the model of that yet, but I'm trying. I'm working hard <laughs> to get better. I did meditate this morning. So that was like, check, did not make it to the bike. I did not make it to the bike either. I'm actually right now staring at my Peloton right next to me. Um, <laughs> I did not make it to the bike yet today, but I'm hopeful this afternoon. Hopeful this afternoon. Yeah, me too. I'm hopeful tonight, even if it's late, I'll be there. Well, Beatrice, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And happy holidays. Happy holidays. And there you have it. Thanks so much, Beatrice, for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Bea underscore Latina. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Thanks.